in this service is to remember that God is present with us and that each of your lives and your stories are holy and God wants to speak into that right now and he does that primarily through his word and we're going to look at that with the second commandment today and so this is from Exodus 20 and this is a continuation of the first commandment you'll see how it builds on the first commandment and so I'm actually just going to read Exodus 20 verses 1 through 6 and we'll focus on 4 through 6 once we get to the sermon so this is God's word to you today and God spoke all these words saying I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery you shall have no other gods before me you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth you shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. So it's our practice here to spend some moments in silence. And in that space, what we're doing is just simply remembering that God is God. And that he sustains all that we do and think and say. And that he makes the world go round. And we oftentimes forget that. And so in this space, what we're asking is for God to make that a reality. And that we would live in light of that reality. That from his love that existed forever, the world came into being. And that's what this commandment is about. And so let's, uh, let's pray and um, sit in silence together. Lord, we ask that you would come into this space with us in ways that we need and that you would show yourself by the power of the Holy Spirit, that you would show yourself to be beautiful in the face of Jesus Christ to us through this commandment. And it's true, Lord, we we do look to things in creation all the time to uh, set us free, to give us peace. We trust in things that um, are never going to be able to give us peace. And so we we tend to crush crush each other and those things tend to destroy us. And that's what this commandment is about. And what you've been telling us all along is that we don't have to look anywhere else besides you. And so would you help us to do that right now through your word? Would you help us to be settled uh, by your love and that we would... um, experience you in in ways that draw us into faith, in ways that draw us into the new creation. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So uh, the first commandment is about who or what you worship. The second commandment is building off of that. And it's talking about the manner or the way in in which you worship. And I know many of us... uh, know that we can, we can do the right thing in the wrong way. And that's part of what this, this command is about. And 
it says that we ought not to make a carved image of anything to use to, to worship God. A carved image of anything in creation. And right off the bat, if, if that is unfamiliar territory to you, which it is to most of us, um, I'm going to give us an example to help us get into the framework of, of how to think about this commandment. Uh, think about the deepest relationships that you have in your life, whether that's like with a friend or with your family members, or it could be an intimate, uh, romantic relationship. The crucible for that relationship lasting and being healthy is when uh, you begin to ask the question, will this person accept me for who I am or will they continue to treat me in the way that they want me to be in the way that they imagine me to be? Does this person really actually love me or do they just love the image of me or an object of me? Doesn't mean that this person can't call you out. Um, when you think about our culture, I, I don't think I have to prove this to anybody. We are an image-based culture. And this is part of why we're struggling today because it's not just that others imagine us or want us to be something different than we are. But we, we've actually done this to ourselves. We've curated our, our whole selves and we all know this, but what does it feel like when someone rejects the parts of you that you aren't super proud of or that don't show up in public or online. So for instance, if you know, if you started dating someone that you met online and you met them in public and you, you sat down and that person said, you don't look anything like you posted online um, and they reject you. Now that's one of the hardest feelings for someone to not accept the real you, but to accept the image of you. And granted, you could have been falsely advertising, but um, this is how God says we ought not to relate to him. That there is a real him and don't create an image of him. This is why God talks about his jealousy in this commandment. Because we have to let who he really is as he reveals himself inform the way that we think about him and inform the way that we relate to him. And so in order to worship this God, you must accept the real him and not simply the him that you want him to be. And we're going to look at that in the three points. The problem with making God into an image, the place to look for God, and the promise of God in this commandment. So point one, the problem with making God into an image, verses four and five. So anytime you construct God in a particular way, what happens is you inevitably leave out something or you add something that isn't there. Now this can be both physical and, and non-physical. It includes literal images, but also the way that you think about God. So in Exodus 32, the people of Israel actually uh, are wondering when Moses is going to come down from the mountain. He's been up there for 40 days and they get a little frantic. And so they say in that fear, they say, let's make uh, an image of a calf, of a bull, and that was what the surrounding nations did. They worshiped a God named Baal, and oftentimes he showed up in the form of a bull. But what's so interesting is not that they did what the other cultures around them were doing, but they used God's language and attributed it to their idolatry. And they said, this is the Lord your God. 
who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And that is very, very peculiar because God's people took God's marital intimacy language and they directed it at something that wasn't him. And this is a problem with God's people throughout every age, that they became syncretistic in how they lived. So that they were unable to be fully pagan or fully God-fearing, and they imagined God to be in this golden calf. And they were uh, limiting God's power by doing so in verse 4. They were looking to that cow for deliverance, and it gets tricky because, you know, that cow was strong. It looked uh, nice, too. It was made of gold. One of the problems with constructing uh, an image of God, whether that's in our heads or literally, and many, many theologians have said this, um, an image of God is always going to conceal more than it will reveal God. So if you were to create an image, uh, even or, you know, a description of Jesus, for instance, I know many of us have probably seen Talladega Nights, you know, like that prayer is like, how, how do you like to think of Jesus, baby Jesus? Um, there, there are multiple uh, sides to Jesus that we find even in Scripture itself. You got the Revelation Jesus or you got the baby Jesus. And so how, how are we to construct how we think about God? We have to let the totality of Scripture inform how we think about God. So even in this command, you can read it and you think, OK, verse five and six. If my parents messed up, if my parents were idolaters, I'm doomed. It says to the third and fourth generation. But in other places in Scripture, so Deuteronomy 24, 16 and Ezekiel 18, it specifically says children will not suffer or be put to death because of the sin of their fathers. Each one is responsible for their own sin, which means that Scripture holds itself in tension. That you must take the totality of what God reveals about himself and take it all in. We must be careful with what we think about God all the time. So how can we do that? It's by having faith that God loves you. And that he's better than anything in creation, in heaven, on earth. And that we don't have to be afraid. If you read Exodus 32, and I would encourage you to go home and do that, you can see the breakdown of those things within the people of God. And, and what they can't, they, they could have done this. They could have waited patiently and listened to what God actually said in his word. Now think about it. Go back to how you relate to other people. Um, what... What happens when you have a breakthrough in a relationship, specifically with a re- relationship that's gone south or gotten sideways? And you guys, you guys know this in- intuitively. It's when someone actually takes you at your word. That they listen to what you're actually saying. If someone continues to relate to you on their own terms, through the lens by which they want to view you, then it becomes impossible to have deep community with that person. To give or receive love. Which is the heart of this command. This is why God's jealous when we break this command. 
You know, jealousy is never spoken of as a good quality. Well, uh, very rarely it's spoken of as a good quality in human beings. But with God, it's good. It's good because he will not let you have just one aspect of himself, but he wants you to experience all of him. Not because he's insecure, but because he does not want you to limit yourself. And he knows that if you look to anything in creation for the purpose of deliverance, it can't hold all that he is. So Sarah and I went to New Orleans last week and we sat down at a restaurant and the waiter said, hey, where are y'all from? And we said, Nebraska. And he's like, oh, I've always wanted to go to Nebraska. And we're just like, honestly, it's not for everybody. <laughs> uh, but we were just like surprised, you know, like, well, why do you want to go to Nebraska? And he's like, I just, I've always wanted to go there. And, you know, what, what if we directed him to go? We said, okay, you want to go to Nebraska? Um, go to this place called Lincoln. And there you will find the tallest building in the city. It's called the Capitol Building. And when you get to the steps of the Capitol Building, that is Nebraska. And so what if our friend did that? What if he drove to Nebraska, set up a tent on the steps of the Capitol building, and he just said, ah, Nebraska, right? This is it. Now, what, what, would, you, what would you say about that? Like, there's so much more to Nebraska than the Capitol, right? There are these things called runzas. There's corn. There's people. There's parties. There's Memorial Stadium. There's this great restaurant called Lazo's, right? He would have been limiting his view of Nebraska in the most narrow way possible. And that's what we do with God when we create an image. We're just, we're limiting ourselves. And, and God says, I don't want you to do that. I want you to experience all of me. So how do, we, how do we do that? Well, don't try and carve out anything in this world and pretend like it's going to give you peace and pretend like it can hold the promises that I can only give you. I want you to experience the full breadth, not only of creation, but, but me. Now, how is that possible? The way back to understanding God, to communing with him, is primarily based on his word. That's why we do this every single week. We come back and we open up an ancient text, which may be strange to some of you in here, and we peer into it. Now, why do we do that? And that's point to the place to look for God. What was Moses doing up on the mountain for 40 days? You can go back and read it. It's Exodus 20 through 31. He was receiving the law. And it's a bunch of rules, a bunch of details. And the people get frantic and they're like, what has happened with this Moses guy? And what Moses was doing is that he was standing face to face before God, receiving his word. And it was sweet for Moses. But the people were scared. This is why, so if you ever read uh, Chronicles of Narnia, there's this book called Silver Chair. And Aslan, the lion, the Christ figure, is talking to, I think it's Lucy. But he says, look, up here on the mountain, the air is clear. But once you descend into Narnia, the air will thicken and you need to take great care that you don't get confused. So rehearse these words to yourself every day and night. And remember that the signs up here are not going to look like they do down there. That's what we have to do with the word. 
And here's why. Um, and I know this is going to sound strange, but the world of Scripture is larger than our world. If you try and take anything in creation and attribute God's promises to it, it will eventually destroy you and you will destroy it because you will put too much weight on it. But when you come into contact with the word, this is what the word reveals to you. It reveals to you an existence where humankind and God exist in reciprocal love at all times. And that there's peace and contentment and people actually live in harmony and unity together and there is no death. That through the scripture, you come into contact with how life is supposed to be and how it was supposed to operate. Meaning scripture is just it's not just like a commentary on on human existence, but there is a force to it. And the force is God coming after you through it, saying, I want to know you. And I want you to know me, all of me. And you can Here's uh, this is how you get more holy. Um, At some point in your life, when the disappointments continue to come with people that, you know, or with your own body that begins to break down or institutions that fail you, what you begin to realize is that this actually gets me more than anything. Even my best relationships, like there, there is a sense into which. My best friends don't know me fully like this does. And you run to it. There's a, uh, a very influential pastor in my life, Sinclair Ferguson. He was a professor of mine. And he said when he was, he's a Scottish guy. He said way back in Scotland when he first met his wife, his pastor told him, he said, Sinclair, I see that you're very happy. Um, but there must be a sanctuary in your heart where only you and God go. God takes that place in your heart, and when he does, even over the best stuff here in creation, that's when you're ready to look to him and say, okay, God, tell me what you're like. I'm listening. Usually that happens to the disappointment of creation and the stuff of creation failing us. Verse four uh, or Deuteronomy chapter four, God says to the Israelites, you heard the sound of words from my voice, but you saw no form. You only heard my voice. Why is that the case? Why does God only give us words? It's because our tendency is to always take what's visible and to set our hope there. It is to manipulate our circumstances to make our lives more manageable and comprehensible to us. And God says, I actually want you to listen without sight. So if you ever sat down with a pastor, um, you'll notice that every single thing you're going through or that you're struggling with or thinking about, they're always trying to point you back to scripture. And the reason why is because we're not trying to cookie cut your life. We're not saying that your situation isn't unique, but we literally think that you can hear the voice of God in scripture. 
and that it can speak into your life a million times better than whatever we could come up with. And in Scripture, we actually believe that it introduces you to a world that's been calling to you all along, called the kingdom of God, which is where you belong. And that it's all pointing to this one specific person, the king. Uh, Marketers know well how to use images to make us worship. Marketers can be, I mean, they're probably some of the best at channeling the deep currents of the hearts of human beings. And I don't know if you guys saw this commercial at the Super Bowl last week, but I mean, it was, it was pretty bizarre. It was about these two Olympians, the McKeever brothers, and it was like a drama movie mashed into a few seconds. You know, one guy went blind. There's these beautiful like nature scenes and they're like training. And then all of a sudden like things work out and then it just says Toyota. And I'm just like, I'm... I don't know how to connect those dots, you know? (laughs) Um, And I don't know about you, but sometimes you may come to church and you like may feel a bunch of things and like you have deep emotions and then people just say, bam, Jesus, you know, like I, you may be struggling to connect the dots. And, And what I want to do with you for the next remainder of the sermon is I want to help you connect the dot to Jesus. Um, Here's the beauty of God. He never falsely advertises himself. And he always keeps his word. Point three, the promise of God in this command. Look at verses five and six. It says, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. So let's go ahead and practice what this commandment is saying. All of us in this room probably lean one way or the other in terms of like really liking God's love or really liking his justice, you know? He says he's both here. And he makes a promise to punish disobedience and to reward obedience. And the punishment is that God says that there are generational consequences of breaking this command. And if you were to trace the history of Israel out, you see this specific sin in the tribe of Dan with carved images. That they continue to do it. And what what you need to know about yourself and your own family is that sin travels through generations. Sin patterns and particularly idle constructs are oftentimes familial. Which is not to say that people are unable to repent at any point, but there are observable patterns of sin within families to the third and fourth generation. What's the other promise? Well, uh, the other promise is that if you love God, and obedience to, to this command is tied to love for him, that that travels to the thousandth generation. Now, here's what I want you to see. Uh, God's promising to punish those who hate him. But he's promising to reward those who love him. And here's the problem. Uh, The people that should love God, the very people who have seen the miraculous physical deliverance out of Egypt, these Israelites, literally, they are breaking this command as they're receiving it. And the reason why is because they were afraid 
and they get frantic and they begin doing what all the other surrounding nations were doing. What did those nations need from the people of God? They needed the people of God to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Through which they came into contact with God and they had hope for a reason or a reason for living and had hope. The nations needed to see God's people absolutely convinced that he loved them. And living in light of that. That's the root of all disobedience, that our our belief that God doesn't love us. And so we live out of desperation. And when we're afraid, we don't have an imagination for how God could be present and how he could be working in and through us. As Ellen Davis says, and God says, listen, I, you cannot forget who I am, but we do. Every one of us. And that's why Jesus had to come. Look, you guys, the world is a the world's a broken place. I don't have to convince you guys uh, of that. But the longer you're a Christian, what you begin to realize is that it's within my own heart. It's not secular culture. Secular culture is not the problem. The church is not the problem, even though those two things can dramatically affect and make the most of my disobedience. The problem is inside me. And the question is, do I actually love God? Like all of him. And do I want him to have all of me? Or do I just prefer to relate to him on my own terms and construct him in ways in my life that make it more manageable and livable? God promises to punish that. And the reason why is that the desperation is the punishment. Because when we look to anything else in creation, we are demanding for it to deliver what it never could and that only God can. And so what's the answer? The answer is to turn yourself to the Lord God and say, I want you. And you'll hear him say, I want you too. But you got to turn to him and say, I want all of you, the real you. And you can have all of me. That's what a human being was meant to do. But we oftentimes pick and choose. My best friend, I didn't I didn't realize how God was working in my life to prepare me (laughs) for other things. But my best friend from age eight to 15, his name was Austin you know, uh, elementary school, middle school, some of high school. Um, he, he died when his daughter was 10 days old. And his girlfriend at the time contacted me like five years after that happened. And she said, hey, I've lost contact with everybody that knew Austin when he was little. And I was wondering if you could tell Olivia, his daughter was named Olivia, a little bit about her daddy that she never knew. And she's like, could you just write some stories to her? And so I found myself in this awkward position because, you know, little Olivia's father introduced me to all the vices early on in my life. And uh, she's this little girl. And so I've been asked to cast this image of my friend, you know, to his daughter who never knew him. 
And I began to think, uh, what would I want someone to tell my children about me if I wasn't around? And the more I thought about that, the more I thought I would want Ambrose and Lazarus to like to know the real me. Like not the one dimensional me, but all of me, the me behind closed doors. Now, I want to read you two verses from Colossians, and I want you to connect the dots between this commandment and Jesus Christ. Colossians 1, 15 through 16 says he is talking about Jesus Christ. He is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. You know what that means? That means that Christ, in Christ, we have all of God and all of creation. That everything you're going after in creation and everything you want out of God is crystallized in his person. He is the exact imprint of God. And you have to, this is, this is the point of living the Christian life. You got to get to a point in your life where you say, what I'm, what I'm trying to carve out in this life is just not doing it for me. It can't deliver. And the constant renewal of the Christian faith is at this table where you constantly come back and you say, Jesus, I have been looking in all the wrong places and you're here signified and sealed in these sacraments and through the word. And when we turn to the word made flesh, he tells us exactly what God's like. And there is a sense into which there, this can happen. You can come to God and you can say no more false ideas, no more mixing and matching or d- discarding what's hard to hear. But all of you, I want all of you in the total fullness of who you are. And God says, when you do that, you will find that all all of the promises of, of God find their yes and amen in Jesus Christ. Even with the punishments that you see in this command that at the cross, you see the justice of God poured out in his mercy coming together. And as one psalm says, kissing each other. In the gospel. And that's the point of this command. For you to see how much God loves you. So much so that he sent his only son. That whoever believes in him. Shouldn't perish. But have eternal life. In Christ we see the promise of God fulfilled. We see the place where he can be found. Which is his word. And we see the problem of breaking this command is completely redeemed. So that the point of your life doesn't become about how you've broken this command, but the point of your life becomes about God. Most blatantly seen in Jesus Christ. Next week, we're going to look at uh, how to not take God's name in vain. But the first four commandments are how we relate to God. And the last six are about how we relate to one another. And so that was commandment two, and we will continue on next week. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you for um, your mercy and your grace. And we also thank you that each particular commandment uh, shows us a little bit different uh, flavor of